Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Thursday. Today, we're going to preview USC's matchup with the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Uh, we got Tim O'Malley from Irish Illustrated. He'll be on the show. And then later on, I'll answer some of your questions that you guys have sent in over the past few days. If you have any questions or comments for us, please email us, podcast at uscfootball.com, or you could call us at 424-254-9141. That number you can leave a voicemail on, or you can even text us if you'd like to text us a question. Please subscribe Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Megaphone, anywhere you can get a podcast. We do appreciate you spending some time with us. And if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star rating, a positive review, tell your friends about the show. All of that helps, and we appreciate it very much. All right, we have a really cool show for you today. We were going to have DeLon Washington as part of this show, but if you've seen in our Peristyle Podcast feed, we put a whole episode up just for him my conversation with him was supposed to take about 20 minutes and it ended up going over an hour. So he talks about that 1996 game, how he got to USC from Texas and a lot more. So back in the early recruiting days, man, he was a stud over 50, almost 5,500 yards and 55 touchdowns in high school. So he was one of those can't miss uh, prospects at the tailback position, ended up picking USC over Colorado and Michigan. And of course, things worked out pretty well. He didn't have the, the greatest you know career as far as like 1,000-yard seasons every year. He did one year. He won a Rose Bowl. But that win over Notre Dame was historic, and he was a huge part of that. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, make, uh, make sure you check it out. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest. It's Tim O'Malley. Follow him on Twitter at Tim O'Malley ND. He's a reporter and writer for irishillustrated.com here on the 24-7 Sports now we're going to preview USC and Notre Dame with Tim. Thanks for joining us, man. How are you doing? Hey, thanks, Brian. Good to be back. So I'm hearing, we talked offline, it sounds like the weather is getting a little worse for uh, if any USC fans are making the trip to South Bend. Yeah, this is crazy, man. It's been 65 to 75 for a month and a half, just absolutely gorgeous, and you're getting some low 40s on Saturday out of nowhere. Right now, I'm looking outside. I was joking with my wife. She works in a dark room all all day, and she's like, "Is it nice out?" Like, it's kind of like San Diego outside right now. But uh, <laughs> I guess it's not going to be that way. If you come in Friday and you're a USC fan, you will have a very nice day walking around. But just the game, maybe not as much. All right, we'll see how that impacts. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how that impacts things uh, for the Trojans making the road trip. It's not been uh, great on the road for USC this year, uh, losing a couple games. Notre Dame actually. If I'm not mistaken, 14 straight home wins, and USC's only won two of their last eight games uh, on the road. Uh, what's what's it been like for Notre Dame at home? It just seems like whatever they're playing at home, uh, they just get things rolling. Yeah, they've had a they've had a good stretch here under Kelly. The last loss was a few years ago. Remember Georgia came to Notre Dame and won kind of a real defensive struggle there, 20 to 19. That's their last loss. Um, Basically, though, they have just play, been a very good team that has played a couple good teams and otherwise average teams. It, it's not a remarkable streak. I did a little something on it because Lou Holtz's streak at Notre Dame was uh, 19, and 
he had about 10 top 12 teams ripped, you know, in, in there now. Wow. Sam Darnold, USC team. Yeah, he, he had a ridiculous streak there in, in the 88 through 90 era. Uh, Sam Darnold, USC team was probably like, uh, you know, you could probably say the second or third best, really, to come in. They didn't have a good day that day. But Michigan last year was probably the marquee win. There's been a couple of good Stanford teams in there. But it's 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 mostly they're handling business. You know, they, 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 are, they do seem to have a comfort level at home now that was really missing in the early years of the Brian Kelly era. Um, I don't think they're going to sneeze at the 14 straight, though. It's a, uh, they do definitely expect to win here. And when USC and Michigan come to town at night, that's a really good atmosphere, and, that, and that's what's going to wait on, on Saturday. Should be crazy. Let's start on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, no quarterback uh, you know, controversy or no quarterback battle this year. I think it was the first time in a while for Brian Kelly. Ian Book, um, you know, it's had, it seems like he's playing pretty well. What are some of his strengths and weaknesses? What have you seen from him so far this year? Yeah, it's, it's been so long. Brian Kelly actually referenced it. That there's no quarter, there's no quarterback issue. Usually, quarter, uh, coaches aren't going to bring that up like the media does. But I mean, aside from when Everett Golson got suspended, this there's never been a year under Brian Kelly where there hasn't been some intrigue. <laughs> uh, book, book. <laughs> Seriously, that is that is it. <laughs> Just because they had no chance at intrigue. But uh, yeah, Book has had a good year. It is statistically great. Uh, it's been a lot of it was against New Mexico and Bowling Green for the gaudy stats. Uh, I thought he played well. I'm sure most people, if they see Notre Dame play this year, was against Georgia. I thought he played well. Now he threw one bad interception on the flea flicker. Um, and then, you know, he threw an interception where a Georgia guy makes a great play. But if he competes like that all year, I, I think Notre Dame is going to continue winning through regular season's end. I Every once in a while, he looks a little shaky than shakier than you would think for a senior quarterback when he doesn't know where the pressure's coming from. He tends to bail out of the pocket. It's become a major sticking point for Notre Dame fans, I think really only because he did it so often against Clemson when he had to bail out of the pocket. And, of course, when Notre Dame fans see their team get beaten down in a playoff game, they tend to remember the quarterback's performance. So if that would be one criticism of Book, he does occasionally feel phantom pressure as a senior, you would not expect that. But, I mean, when he's going, he, he's a really accurate guy, short and medium, and uh, the offense tends to get very hot when he starts hot early. Yeah, Clemson defensive line, that wasn't phantom pressure. That was real pressure. <laughs> no, there was nothing. That, that was real pressure. He wasn't going anywhere. If he stayed in the pocket, it would not have worked out either. So there was no – I, I gave him a pass on that one. I don't think that was all his fault. Yeah. Um, so we, one of the weird stats is that, that Notre Dame doesn't actually run a whole lot of plays. I think it's like 62.4. But you're getting uh, a lot of production, top 10 production on each play. Uh, it seems like it's a kind of a chunk play, explosive play kind of offense. Is that how you'd kind of characterize it? Yeah, they've had 75 plays of 10 yards or more, and 50 of them come from about five guys. Now, the odd thing for Notre Dame was the first three games, and this includes Georgia, so that, that one makes sense, but Louisville and New Mexico do not. They were having trouble sustaining drives, so they would either go down and score right away or they were going three and out. They had way too many three and outs. Virginia was kind of up and down also. I will say Virginia has a very good defense, and they bring some pressure, and it eventually affected Book. So there's a lot of big plays. There's big plays against everyone, but as I said, there are more against the likes of Bowling Green and New Mexico, naturally. Um, I think it's a very good Irish offense. It will not be great, I don't think, at any point this year, but the offensive line is gelling the last two games. Getting Cole Komet back uh, for the Georgia game was big. They're going to get Jafar Armstrong back, their lead running back. This week, I don't think he will be great his first game back from abdominal surgery that occurred in early September. They're probably kind of working him into it. He's a pretty versatile weapon, and he can come in there and, and kind of help Tony Jones, who's one of the better slow running backs you'll play against this year if you're a USC fan. 
What was the uh, how's the offensive line kind of developed uh, this year? It's USC's strength on defense probably has to be the defensive line. It seems like this Notre Dame offensive line's got better as the season wore on. How would you kind of characterize what they've done this year? Yeah, it really has. I think if you caught Notre Dame uh, in the opener week two, that the USC defensive line would have had a heck of a day. Uh, the last two weeks, they looked really good. They, they settled in against Virginia and just wore down Virginia in the running game in the fourth quarter. Uh, I thought they held their own against Georgia for Ian Book throwing 47 passes and not getting sacked and not getting terribly pressured, really. Um, they did not run the ball well against Georgia at all, but Brian Kelly and Chip Long have both said publicly and privately we went into that game knowing we were not going to try to run because Georgia's rush defense was going to kind of overmatch Notre Dame. They were down to three running backs. Uh, the offensive line had not gelled yet, and they just didn't want to have too many negative plays. I think Notre Dame will be able to run the ball Saturday. Uh, if they do, they'll win. If they don't, that is what the recipe for the upset is for USC because then it goes back to Book having to make plays, and you know there's some athletes coming at him from USC. I think running the ball is going to be crucial for Notre Dame on Saturday. Switching uh, to the defensive side of the ball, I said USC strength on the defense was the defensive line. Certainly on offense, it's the wide receiver core. That's you know th- the best group, maybe the best group in the Pac-12. Uh, it's one of the you know it's one of the best groups uh, on the West Coast for sure. These USC receivers are great. What can they expect as a matchup with the Notre Dame secondary? And how important is it that fifth-year senior uh, Sean Crawford's out with a dislocated elbow? I think that's a big deal because. With Crawford and Troy Pride, who's a senior, uh, Pride played pretty well against USC last year. He forced a fumble in the red zone. Uh, Tyler Vaughn's got him for the touchdown at the end of the game, but you know, it was Tyler Vaughn's leaping nine feet into the air and, and having a touchdown pass down the post, so you can't put that all on Pride. Uh, with Pride and Crawford, they had two make, playmaking corners and a guy that's kind of coming on, Tariq Bracey, who's a kind of smallish sophomore. Now, Trojan fans could remember Bracey because Michael Pittman effectively benched Tariq Bracey for the Cotton Bowl just by how he tore him up at the uh, Coliseum last year. He's obviously improved. He's a sophomore now, but he's a starter. The advantage USC's receivers have over the corners cannot be overstated. I will say that Notre Dame's safeties are among the best in the country in that they have two seniors that really know what they're doing, have been through it in Alohi Gilman and Jalen Elliott. They can both match up one-on-one. You don't want them one-on-one with USC's receivers, but they can really cover and then the best player in the program in the future, and a very good player right now, is freshman safety Kyle Hamilton, who comes in the nickel. And I think Notre Dame's going to find a way to use the nickel quite a bit in this game because he is a phenomenal athlete. Um, at least, and this is from multiple sources, 17 training camp interceptions for the true freshman. Whoa. Uh, he's, got, he's got two already. And the odd thing is he's 6'4", 210. He looks like a string bean. But he's one of those guys that has a little bit of a screw loose, and he hits like he's 230. So he is probably best. He's one of Notre best athletes they've had since the Lou Holtz era. And he's kind of coming into his own, and this is going to be a big game for him because they will need him just to match up against the receivers out there. They, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of Kyle Hamilton doing some one-on-one because he's just that good of an athlete. What kind of coverages do, does this Notre Dame secondary play, or even the back seven, because we've seen – especially when USC went on the road, when when teams will drop eight back into coverage a lot or just kind of you know drop into some kind of zone and do what they can to take away USC's deep threats and take away the wide receivers, even the intermediate routes, it's really kind of confused the USC offense at times and saw the young quarterbacks throw a bunch of picks. Is that something that, you know, we talked to Graham Harrell, the offensive coordinator. He says usually teams aren't going to do that if they don't do that you know, at some point in their packages. Is that kind of one of the packages that Notre Dame uses? And what's kind of the typical 
defense you'd see from this back seven. Yeah, they do. With with Crawford, they had a dime they went to off. But when I say nickel now, because they used to use a dime, which was six defensive backs, Crawford and Bracey uh, and Troy Pride, plus those three safeties. They brought in a redshirt freshman linebacker named Jack Lamb. And then they let the four guys loose up front and played zone behind him or man under and zone over the top. It is probably going to be a nickel now just because they don't have another defensive back to put in that they would trust. Um, the Rover, who's yeah, he's a hybrid linebacker safety, but he's more of a linebacker, is uh, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. He started playing a little man-to-man last week. I think they were testing it out, and he did very well, but it's Bowling Green. <laughs> um, Brian Kelly's already said, look, man, he's not playing man-to-man against USC in the slot. I'm on Ross St. Brown. So there's going to be a lot of zone action there. He's another very good athlete. He was a lightly recruited player that signed with Notre Dame out of Virginia. And uh, he flipped from Virginia. Actually, when Notre Dame had that bad season in 2016, he flipped near signing day. And he's proven to be a very good first-time, first-year starter here as a junior. So he's one of their better athletes as well. But, yeah, it's going to be, I think there'll be a lot of zone or you know, man under and zone on top. With uh, They're just going to unleash the front four because they really like their pass rushing quartet when they're in the nickel and dime they, they bring in three defensive ends and one defensive tackle yeah Owusu Koromora I think he's Notre Dame's leading tackler if I'm not mistaken and it seemed like his role did change a little bit but you don't think it will be much different when they play USC yeah I think he just gets more snaps because he would come out in the dime uh with the six DBs now he stays in the nickel you, you won't see a dime I don't they don't they don't have a dime <laughs> they don't trust their other quarterbacks so there there probably won't be a dime against us they definitely don't trust them against USC receivers so he'll be on the field a lot I mean he'll he'll tackling is going to be important because he's going to if he is matched up in the slot and even though you have you know help over the top he's still going to play a little bit of one-on-one so tackling will be key for him he's a very good athlete good tackler this year um Obviously, I'm on Ross St. Brown in space is a problem for him. But uh, I think the, the kind of the goal for Notre Dame is just to unleash those defensive ends in, in certain long situations. And with, with seven guys back, they believe that Julian Aquara, uh, Khalid Kareem, especially the, that pair can get there. Uh, Dalen Hayes, the former USC commit, is out for the season. His replacement is a senior, Jameer Jones, who was going to redshirt as a true senior. Uh, but when Hayes went down, he came in and he he came in and kind of turned the Virginia game around with a strip sack touchdown, and he's he's been playing well since. Uh, Hayes is really coming along. I, I think it. I don't know if there's a drop off this year. There is in the future because they would have had Jameer Jones next year, and, and now they won't. But they their their depth at defensive end is the strength of the team, and you may have never heard a Notre Dame reporter say that in the years you've been covering USC, but that's really what it's become. Yeah, a couple of senior captains, um, 45 tackles for loss. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Those numbers are crazy as far as like, like what, like nine a game or something? It seems like there's a lot of play going on in the opponent's backfield. Yeah, and there's, there's honestly, there's a lot of stuff that zero one and two games, too. They've, they've, that front has been better than we thought because the defensive tackles, when they lost Jerry Tillery, we thought, well, you know, it's just a couple of guys now. Well, they have a good four-man rotation inside, and, and they've been playing. I guess it's not above their heads anymore because it's five games, but they've played way better than we thought they would. You know, the early spring, every Notre Dame writer thought interior defensive line is the weakness because one guy was a true freshman. There were two juniors that had not distinguished, and there was an undersized sophomore. By the end of the spring, we realized, all right, it's not a weakness, but it won't be a differentiator. And now all of a sudden, it seems like it's part of the differentiator. So shows you what we know, but they are, they are playing very well up front. About the quick on the special teams, anything, any standouts on the special team side? It's a freshman punter, um, and he's done very well. Uh, we like to say that uh, Notre Dame stole a player from Alabama, finally, the freshman punter, Jay Bramblett, <laughs> out of Tuscaloosa. 
but uh, he's he's had a, he's had a, a good year so far. He's, he doesn't boom it. Like Notre Dame lost their number one uh, field goal kicker of all time in Justin Yoon and their number two punter of all time in Tyler Newsom, who was actually a captain last year. But Bramblett's done very well in Newsom's stead. Jonathan Dorr is the kicker. He was horrid in the spring. Uh, he's three of four this year, I believe. Could be two of three, three of four. He's He seems fine. Um, Notre, Notre Dame fan will trust him to win a game with a kick until it happens. But he was so bad in the spring and then just all of a sudden – decent in August and now he really seems like he's kind of gained confidence uh he's a guy they actually have really targeted when they got Brian Polian to come in as a special teams coordinator and I think Notre Dame fans are pretty mad that they used another scholarship on a kicker that could not retain his kickoff duties and, and just look <laughs> terrible but now he's as a junior he seems like a viable kicker uh he really has not had any pressure kicks other than Georgia at the half, which he didn't make. Yeah. USC seems to be really good at getting lots of guys on special team scholarships. So those, uh, the, the USC fans <laughs> listening to this will have sympathy uh, when you find like, Oh what? yeah. There's a 12 year string of long snapper scholarships going on. Notre Dame started by Charlie Weiss, but now they can't get out of it. I guess they think it's the most important thing there is. So it's uh, interesting. In fact, if, if, yeah. They, and another one's coming. There's another one coming next year. Wow. So it's, it's going to continue. Yeah, uh, well, a couple of last things before we let you go. Turnover margin uh, is a big deal. Notre Dame is one of the best in the country, I think number two. And USC is in the bottom 10, like number 122 or something. Very different. USC, when they've gone on the road, you know, three interceptions in each game, the turnovers have really hurt them. How would you say, has this been a focus uh, for this Notre Dame team, really focused on taking care of the ball and taking the ball away? Because it just seems like something Brian Kelly's squad is doing a, an excellent job at. Yeah, they've they've been good at taking the ball away the last couple of years. Uh, Book is maybe careful to a fault, but you know what? If you don't throw picks, that's okay as well. Uh, two picks came against Georgia. Obviously, very few last year. I'm going to go ahead and say this for any Notre Dame fans listening out in the Los Angeles area or West Coast. They have not had a running back lose a fumble since the end of 2015. It's a streak that Notre Dame coaches hate when we bring up, but it's kind of remarkable. And, it is uh, remarkable. They, that's they, crazy. It is remarkable, really. Yeah, it was. Josh Adams and C.J. Prosites were the last guys to lose fumbles, and Josh Adams is a true freshman when it happens. But uh, it's it's been a while, and Book is a, you know he's a cautious quarterback. Um, I think that works out in their favor, so they don't turn it over much. And both the secondary and defensive ends have been pretty adept at creating turnovers. So it's something that you would think would continue, maybe up until they play. I mean, you know, with with Slovis and coming up Shea Patterson in Michigan, I don't see why it wouldn't continue. I think if you I don't think they're going to the playoffs, but if they were to sneak in, it probably would not continue against Trevor Lawrence. But I think against the rest of the humans out there, they, they're going to cause turnovers the rest of the year. Uh, USC had a bye week and uh, needed to kind of get healthy, get some guys back. Keaton Slow is coming back. Uh, Talano Funga, their best tackler, he's coming back. So I, I, their, their sort of strategy was to not really go super hard. I kind of like the way things set up for Notre Dame. You didn't have a bye week, but you have Bowling Green. You win 52 to nothing. Um, you kind of get things right. Ian Book throws five touchdown passes in the first yeah, half. Yeah. It's sort of like a scrimmage that you don't, you know, no one gets hurt, and it just seems to like keep everybody sharp. I, how would you feel that game set up for this one? And then is there any? But I, I don't think you're going to be looking ahead to Michigan. But with two games in a row like that, I don't know if Bowling Green was like the perfect recipe for this Notre Dame team going into these couple of tough games. Oh, I agree. It was better than a bye. I mean, they were just, there could not have been a less impressive team to come into Notre Dame Stadium <laughs> than this Bowling Green team. It was, it was remarkable. I, 
I really thought they were going to get 70 at some point. Bowling Green brought in a backup quarterback that was pretty decent at throwing swing passes, and they were able to maintain possession for a while. So everything slowed down. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a true preseason game in, in week four or five. I think the SEC has nailed it. They do that in week 11 before their big games in week 12. Notre Dame should do that all the time instead of a bye. I bet you they look better against USC than they do against Michigan coming off the bye. Which There's a bye between USC and Michigan this year, um, which people have been pointing to as a strength. New Mexico before Georgia and Bowling Green before USC, I think, is the way to go. That's the SEC once again is ahead in football. Yeah, um, yeah, they they seem to do that very well. They game <laughs> the system better than anybody. Um, so yeah, the, the FCS going out there. <laughs> yeah, got a lot of that. So looking at this game, I'm not great with the prediction stuff. Uh, Notre Dame's favored by 11. I would take, uh, I would be taking Notre Dame and laying the points. How do you feel? this one's going to go any kind of inkling of the, you know, the way Notre Dame's playing USC playing and how you think this will, will end up in South Bend on Saturday. I think since the way they've played, including the Georgia game where I look, they lost, I think still think it's the most, the best game they've played. Um, I really think Notre Dame's playing well right now. I, if I had to guess, I wouldn't guess they win out just because you're, I don't know if you're always going to be at your best over the final seven, eight games. Uh, but with USC's problems and with Notre Dame's strengths, I think Notre Dame can offset the three wide receivers enough where it's not an absolute game wrecker. Clark Lee, uh, defensive coordinator, has never allowed 30 points in two years other than to Clemson. Um, you know, that's that defense actually played okay in that game. It was, it was probably a little bit more on the offense, but they really have it rolling defensively. Uh, they have it rolling at home. I would be surprised if Notre Dame loses this game. I think it would be a crushing blow for Notre Dame fans if they lose this game, actually, as 11-point favorites. I do remember Matt Barkley coming in in 2011 with the craziest nine-and-a-half-point favorite line for Notre Dame. That was just a bad line. I think Las Vegas fell asleep for a week. Um, I don't see this USC team having that Robert Woods-Matt Barkley connection to go out and beat Notre Dame, and I think Notre Dame's offense is probably too good over 60 minutes. Uh they usually find a way to score those four or five touchdowns. And I would think that would be enough to, you know, if not cover be right there in a 10, 14 point win. Tim O'Malley does a great job covering the fighting Irish for irishillustrated.com. Make sure you check out his stuff. Uh, thanks, Tim. Hey, thanks a lot, Ryan. And uh, yeah, maybe could get a break. People coming out here, you might have a, uh, maybe get the 55 range, but I think our 70 degrees are gone and it timed out well, I guess, for uh, Notre Dame fans that want to see USC fans cold. Yeah, bring your uh, coats and gloves. It could be in the 40s. All right, well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back, and I'll answer some of your questions heading into the USC versus Notre Dame game. We'll be back in one minute. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are back here on the Peristyle Podcast. I want to get to some of your questions you guys have sent in over the past week or so. If we didn't get to them during Harvey Hyde's or Dan Weber's podcast, I'll do them now and try to do my best to answer these questions for you. So thanks so much for sending them in. We'll start off with an email from 1977 Trojan. He says, I recall Pete Carroll years very fondly, 
as most Trojan fans do. One remarkable trait about most of his teams was that they improved from the beginning of each season to the end. During the Helton years since that 2016 Rose Bowl championship team, I do not believe that I've seen much improvement from week to week. Coach Helton has not changed his approach to practice as much, and the results speak for themselves. Should we expect any different from this point in the 2019 season, despite the lack of tangible results? Isn't the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? Just wondering why we have the talent, but lack of cohesive and consistent play. I'm the one that asked if Coach Helton ever watched footage of Pete's practices on positive. He never did or even tried. Thanks and fight on. 1977 Trojan. Uh, interesting email. Uh, thanks for sending that in. And Clay Elton did learn under Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, he really looked up to those guys. And uh, if you ever interviewed Clay Elton when he was an assistant, all he had was praise uh, for his head coaches and how smart they were and how well they did things. Now, I think you learned the USC way during the sanctions and you had to do things a little bit differently. And it seems like that's something that stuck. Um, it was definitely run differently under Pete Carroll. I think if you watched, if you've watched any of that, I think you could explain it away why you did things that way, but you don't need to do them now. I'm not exactly sure, but that certainly seems like something that you would like to do. The whole practice, uh, making practices harder than the games, is something that we've heard said, but not something we've seen in practice. And yes, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. And expecting something different to happen. And we don't see much of a change as far as practices go. Now, if you remember 2016, Clay Hilton did come out and say there was a special team after the loss uh, to Utah. And USC went on a run at that point. And so a lot of people didn't believe him. USC was one and three. I didn't believe him. And he was right, though. And it was a special team. And they went on a run. Now, that team had Sam Darnold. And that team had a, a much easier schedule with one really tough game at Washington that USC ended up winning. USC, you know, he said this after uh, the BYU game, um, and USC did beat Utah, but then end up losing to Washington on the road. So, and now you got Notre Dame coming up. So I think it's a tougher road for sure. And I'm not really sure where USC can go from here. I'm not expecting a, a lot of improvement, but it's still a really talented team. Um, is it a well-coached team? I, I, I don't think so, but. You know, we'll we'll see how they go from this point going forward. But you got to go on the road and and beat Notre Dame. Uh, I'm not expecting that to happen. Uh, it doesn't. You know, we talked to Tim O'Malley, and you know, you get the the view of where Notre Dame is. That's a complete team. That's a real team. I'm not sure USC is capable right now of going on the road and winning that game. Now, there's a lot of games on the schedule that USC can win, but I think there's a lot more they can lose too. The Pac-12 is all over the place. Don sent in some questions. Uh, here's the first one. We always hear that USC is fixing or working on fixing the penalty, turnover, etc. problems. If they don't practice in pads and don't hit, how are they able to fix those problems? Hey, Don. Well, I think bringing out uh, officials to practices was very helpful. I think it helped in the beginning, but now we're seeing more penalties. The early results were pretty good. Not as many penalties in the first few games, but then it's got worse as the season uh, wore on. So I'm not sure how you do that. As far as turnovers go, yeah, that's a real issue. I mean, those are things that Clay Hilton was taking personally and saying that he's giving up the offense so he can oversee bigger aspects of the game like that. And uh, right now, those are real problems. I don't know if practicing in full pads is going to fix penalties. I think it certainly could help 
with the turnovers, you're getting hit more. You're used to getting hit. You, you won't fumble. Um, I don't know if it's helping the interceptions all that much, but uh, maybe with some of the fumbles. But USC's got a turnover problem. There's definitely a penalty problem. And uh, not sure. We'll see what Clayton has up its sleeve. We can't watch practices anymore. Maybe he's done some big things uh, during practice to kind of help out. We'll see. Uh, Dan wrote in, any news strangely quiet with regard to Hufunga and Griffin? So um, not officially cleared like Keaton Slovis as of uh, as of Wednesday. But, you know, tell no Hufunga's practicing. Uh, Elijah Griffin's in there. We expect both of those guys uh, to play. So we don't get an update after Wednesday's practice from Clay Helton. But uh, Tuesday we did. And uh, it seems like those guys are going to play. Um, we did hear that Keaton Slovis is not only cleared, but he's going to start the game. So that's good news. And I, I think you'll see a, a much, a little bit deeper secondary because of the addition of Hufunga and Griffin. Um, another one from Don. Do you feel that USC loses another four or five star recruit every time Helton does a post game presser? Uh, no, Don. I, I know. <laughs> There's no four or five star recruits to lose at this point. Um, recruiting is not bad because you don't like the Clay Helton pressers. Recruiting's bad because his status is so up in the air. And that's just the way it is. If USC goes out and beats Notre Dame, beats Oregon at home, and starts winning games, and everyone's talking about, well, this team is going to go to the Rose Bowl, then I think recruiting picks up. Or if USC loses some of those games and the the administration ends up making a change. Uh, I think recruiting would pick up as well, depending on who you hire. So I think that's what's wrong with recruiting right now. Um, not his uh, post game press conferences. I do have another one from Don on recruiting. Uh, do you think Clay Hilton concentrates on three stars? Because deep down, Clay Hilton knows uh, if he was graded, he would be no more than a three star coach. Don, man, you are like bringing the heat here. No. Um, so I think it was, I think the class was, maybe it was this last year's class. I think it was the class of 2019 that USC had more three stars than ever before. And some of what we were hearing outside of Heritage Hall was, it was more about evaluations and it was more about, um, you know, getting our kind of guys and not worrying about the star rankings. And you know, the star rankings aren't perfect, but We've done a lot of, we've shown a lot of data that, you know, who has the most, star, you know, five stars, like Alabama, like they're okay. So that makes sense. They seem to get the best players. Is everyone the best player in the world? No, but you get enough of those five stars. Your team's probably pretty damn good. And Alabama is and Ohio state is and Georgia is and Clemson is. So it kind of corresponds, but USC has got numbers that are up there, like in the top five, as far as recruiting rankings go, but not showing the results. Uh, on the field. But anyway, for that class, that's the narrative we were kind of getting. And it, to me, it didn't make any sense because if you go into trying to get three stars first, uh, guys that you want, as opposed to four stars, okay, that's fine. You evaluated someone and said, this guy's only a three star. That guy's a four star. I like the three star better. We're recruiting him. And you're like, fine. I mean, you're a coach. You're smart. This is what you do. If you find a three star you like more, go right ahead. USC was going after the four and five stars and missing and then getting three stars afterwards. So to me, it was more of an afterthought. It was more of a secondary plan than it was on the, you know, to, to go out for three stars at the beginning. So to me, that didn't make any sense, but also 
this recruiting class, I mean, you had a guy like Bryce Young committed, um, and then he ends up decommitting. There's just so much turmoil. I don't think you can really judge what recruiting is going on now. Now, they went out and got a bunch of offensive linemen uh, that they like, but there's a lot of projects. You don't really have anyone that's um, I don't think you look at the three stars that USC has committed and maybe one is someone that you think could be a, a early contributor. A lot of them are just kind of project guys, but I think that's a, you know, that's a result of what you're seeing on the field, the uncertainty with Clay Helton's job status. Uh, now that Lin Swan's gone, you bring in a new AD, he'll either back Clay Helton and there'll be some stability or he won't and, or he or she won't. And, uh, Clay Elton will be gone, and then you move on, and the new coach can worry about that recruiting class. So um, that's kind of where I feel like recruiting is right now. Let's go to uh, Jeff, the math teacher in Fountain Valley. So what is a reasonable time frame for us to expect on an athletic director hire? I'd say they do it right than to do it fast, but it has to be, but it's been a month now since Swan resigned. So the resigned, that's funny. So the process should be well underway. I know coaching changes don't usually happen midseason, but is there any reason an AD hire can't happen midseason? Thanks and fight on. Jeff, the math teacher in Fountain Valley. Hey, Jeff. Yeah. Um, so the process actually started about two weeks before uh, the letter came from Carol Folt about Lin Swan's quote unquote resignation. He was forced out. There's no question about that. So yeah, it's probably been going on six weeks or so now. We've heard some names that get narrowed down. Um you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I mean, you could have an announcement soon in the next week or so, or it might take a little bit longer. I don't expect it to take another month or so. I, I think, you know, you got to have this in place, uh, you know, by the middle of November or so. I think you want to get this done as soon as possible. And especially it depends on what happens on the field with USC. So yeah, I, I, I don't think, Mid-season, it's going to be a mid-season hire. I would is my guess, um, unless there's something that they really, someone they really like, and it's going to take longer. But in that case, then if you have to make a change at the biggest sport, uh, football, then there'll probably be some working behind the scenes to sort of get that ball rolling. Because you can't wait long if you're going to make a change. If you want to try to save the recruiting class, you know the early signing period is you know, uh, late December. So you got to have someone in place to get some time to, to build this back up and show their new vision for the football program. If it comes to that right now, there is no, there has been no, uh, coaching change. So we'll see, uh, you know, we should know more, you know, as the weeks roll on. All right, let's go to Alex in LA. Quick question. If SB 206 had been around during Reggie's time, uh, would he have been okay to work with an agent? And in turn, would USC have avoided all the mess that took place? Any chance of the passing of this bill will soften the stance on Reggie's ban? Thanks, Alex in LA. Um, I mean, the Reggie ban is just ridiculous to me anyway, but you're talking about the, um, you know, the right for, you know, the, the name, image, and likeness for student athletes. You can hire agents if that, uh, when that bill goes into effect. But I think this is a case where, it was an agent or a wannabe agent giving benefits to Reggie's family, trying to get him to sign with him when he turned pro. So I don't, it doesn't seem like it's a, you know, the right mix there. Um, I don't know if it, anything was going to soften the NCAA stance unless USC does hire a great athletic director and they come in and show them the hypocrisy and how stupid this whole thing is and kind of force the NCAA's hand. So that's what I think a good athletic director, athletic director would need to do coming in here. But Alex, I don't think um, 
if you were allowed to be paid for your name, image, or likeness uh, in the Reggie Bush years, if that would have had an impact. I mean, you can hire an agent. Maybe you hire an agent and it's not, you don't have to, uh, the agent doesn't have to give benefits to try to get you to hire an agent. I'm not actually sure on how that works. Like, Because if agency, if you can get an agent, would there be competition from the agents to try to get that guy? And is it okay? Can you, is that making money off your name, image, and likeness if the agent pays you or gives you benefits? I'm not sure. I'd have to ask someone that, that understands that bill a little bit better, but that's, that's interesting because that's not like some corporate sponsorship or anything. But I mean, I guess if a company can pay you, could an agent pay you? Um, potentially, I guess. Let's go to Brian, um, class of 2011 along the Reggie Bush lines. He said, I've heard several arguments made by both Ryan and Dan about the penalties being lifted by the NCAA against Reggie Bush. My question is, why should the penalties be lifted when Reggie hasn't shown one ounce of contrition? Has he never, uh, he has never admitted to wrongdoing, never apologized to the university, players that were affected, or to the fan base either. I think if any penalties are to be lifted, it should first begin with Reggie owning up to his errors. That way we can all move on. Thoughts, Brian, class of 2011. Hey, Brian, I mean... That, what did Reggie do wrong? It was his family doing things wrong. He gave the Heisman trophy back. Um, he seems to be very, you know, he, I think he's trying to take the high road in all of this. Um, this was the, the, sto- the, the, the crazy storm that came out of this um, was absolutely insane. And I think you could argue like he could have paid off these people and then you don't, uh, you probably wouldn't have all this mess, but I don't think anyone anticipated how messy this would eventually uh, B, but I'm not blaming Reggie on this one. I mean, the NCAA is completely overstepped their bounds. So I'm just like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not ready. You know, I know there's some people out there that are upset with Reggie, but, and I think there was more people before, but I think now that you guys are in the minority, I think most people love him. He's been, how many recruits are at USC because of Reggie Bush? I, I think whatever, and he's paid a lot of penalties in this whole thing. And I think you don't, if you're waiting for him to, apologize if that's what you're most upset about i I think you're you're uh, not seeing the forest through the trees here all right uh don again could you explain the reasoning behind throwing to drake london on big plays in the red zone i do like london very much but it seems like st brown Pittman, vaughns or devin williams would be a better choice one play and three turnovers from being undefeated don uh so devin williams no longer on the team so he's he's not a better choice because he's not available he's at oregon um, but yeah, that was very, it's kind of curious. They're throwing to him in these weird spots and where I liked him were kind of some of these quick things off the line of scrimmage. I think he can beat a defender and, you know, catch a ball up at, you know, eye level or throw it up higher than, you know, over his head. I feel like he was good at that in practice and they haven't really been doing that. There've been the longer, more slower developing plays where maybe he's not going to make the best break on the ball and defenders are and I, yeah I'm I'm not sure why I like him like inside the five yard line you know kind of throwing some quick stuff to him um but like the long fade and the the slower developing route that came over the middle that was the the ball was delivered late it yeah not really a fan of that Don um and I, I think a guy like that you kind of got to get him going. Like the, what it was his big play. It was like a shorter pass that he took off and ran afterwards. Um, I think you want to go stuff like that as opposed to making sure you're trying to get this connection between uh, an experienced quarterback and a very young receiver somewhere far down the field. Uh, we'll see where they go 
from here. Um, if they use him more, you try to use him differently. I'm not sure, uh, but trying to use him more at Notre Dame might be tough. They're probably going to rely on the big three, and I don't think I would uh, disagree with that. All right, we got one last question from Tony. He says, Helton has to go. Seriously, I read the LA Times article saying that Urban Meyer was probably not the best choice due to all the controversy and the bo- and the USC board didn't want to hand over the program to a coach. But do you think they will still make this move? At this point, we need him. These low standards will not cut it anymore. Thanks, Tony, for the email. Yeah, I think lowering uh, expectations, lowering the standards of the program is something that's been happening. And I feel like it's happening because you know, the results aren't as good. You don't see the same sort of dedication, the budget being allotted. And I feel like it's the university saying, well, we better lower expectations. And I don't think that's the way to go. Playing a, a an FCS school for the first time, doing things that I, I don't, I think it's be, beneath what this, the prestige of this university represents and uh, what the program represents. And I think a lot of it's because of bad decisions that were made and now you're sort of like lowering the expectations because, well, we made all these bad decisions. Here's the mess you're in now. And if you just look at the the, the slide shot you know, the, of what is going on right now, you're like, oh, yeah. Um, there's things are a little bit of a mess. I could see why you'd want to do this. Or I could see why you'd want to do that. But why are you, why are you in that mess? It's because of horrible decisions that were made before. Bad hires at the highest levels, uh, like athletic director and head coach, and assistant coaches and all that. And that kind of puts you in a mess. So instead of saying, hey, we're going to fix the mess, you're like, well, let's lower expectations and lower the standards. And I don't think that's right, Tony. So I agree with you. That LA Times article, I think that was just a Bill, I believe you're talking about a Bill Plaschke column. That's his column. Um, I don't agree with him. I think Urban Meyer is not, it's it's not just the best choice. It's almost like the only choice is if you want to 100% turn this thing around, you have to give over power again trying to hire someone that's not going to rock the boat while it was nice to not have the school and as much controversy off the field. You have plenty of it on the field. Uh, you've had some off the field too. Um, Clay Hilton definitely was the adult in the room. They needed that because of poor hires before, but that doesn't mean you should lower your standards for hiring a head coach who's never been a head coach before. And that's Clay Hilton. He had never been a head coach before. You're USC, your top five program of all time really should be rare that you hire someone that's never been a head coach. And uh, they've done that a couple of times and it's just, it's not working out or really inexperienced head coaches or people that just you're familiar with or all of those things. And yeah, that's where this problem has kind of come from. So Tony, the best way to fix it, if you make a move is bring in someone like Urban Meyer and at least try to bring in someone like Urban Meyer. If USC does make a move, and then they try to bring in Urban Meyer and it doesn't work out. At least you tried to do get the best coach available. He is definitely the best coach available. So at least USC would try. Before, USC wouldn't even try. They wouldn't interview people like that. They wouldn't even go after anyone who other people wanted. They kind of want to do their own thing outside the box. Someone familiar, someone that maybe gets USC and all that, that bull crap. Uh, that bull crap has to stop. So if you're making a move, what you got to do is get someone with experience, like I've been saying all along, and preferably someone that doesn't know the fight song. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode of the Peristyle Podcast, previewing USC 
and Notre Dame. Uh, thanks so much to Tim O'Malley for coming on and sharing some time. Don't forget, check out the Peristyle pregame show Friday nights, uh, KABC Los Angeles uh, on the radio, AM dial 790 at midnight on Friday. We'll play that show, but they'll be it'll be up on the KABC website as well in podcast form, and we'll put it up as a podcast here. Part of that interview with uh, Tim O'Malley will be on there, but we talked to Taylor Mays. Uh, we get interviews from practice. It's a really cool show. So if you are driving to South Bend from Chicago, you definitely want to pop that in on your podcast and listen to it. Or, you know, if you're just listening at home, make sure you turn it in and, uh, you know, it'll be a great preview heading into the USC Notre Dame game. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up. I am Ryan Abraham. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast, and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.